Hello, everyone, and welcome to Riders Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast where writers sit around drinking tasty beverages to talk about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. There will be rants and raves and opinions that may not agree but are lovingly delivered. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Your pro fan base today includes Chaz and Karen Brunchley and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 185. Welcome back, Brenda Clough. Welcome, Brenda. Hi, everybody. Hi, Brenda. Thoughtfully, we haven't seen you in in 65 episodes. (laughs) You have been a busy girl. I really have. I don't understand it. It just sort of happens. Well, not just for anybody who doesn't follow her on social media, and you should. She travels the world eating delicious food and making you terribly jealous about everything. But then I also see that you have published a new short story in Clark's World called Cleo's Scroll, right? Yes. And uh, go ahead. Well, and I should say that for those who don't know, Clark's World is is a really good magazine to have published in. And I read the story and it is extremely good. And I'm familiar with the background and the period and stuff. And I think you just knocked it out of the park. I believe, although I someone's going to fish up an example and prove me wrong, I don't believe that. Dante Alighieri appears very often in hard science fiction. He may have been in, you know, um, uh, Philippe Jose Farmer's, you know, To Your Scattered Bodies Go, or one of those books. But I don't think he's ever sort of been in in any uh, in any uh, majorly hard science fiction by himself. And uh, I wrote this. I actually had been planned to write a long novel about him, and I got the idea, as I recall, in 2013, after I had had cataract surgery. And after you have cataract surgery, the new clarity of your vision Mm -hmm. strikes you, you know, like, uh, oh, it's like, you know, the heavens rolling up like a scroll. All of a sudden you can see stuff. So I stood out in the front yard seeing stuff. And I said to my husband, look at that tree way over there in the neighbor's yard. It was a good way far away and it was a good high tree. And there was something in the boughs of that tree. And I couldn't see what it was because it was almost hidden by the boughs, but I could see that there was something there. And he, with his eyeglasses, could sort of see that there was something there. And he said, it's probably a paper wasp nest, which probably is what it was. And I said, it's probably the skeleton of a cat. And this is not taken that well. And then I thought, well, what else could it be? And clearly, if you were going to be an alien and you wanted to hide your spaceship, (laughs) one of the good things to do would be to hitch it to the top of a very tall tree, because that's an area that's really hard to get up to. It would be too high for like a telephone guy with his bucket. And it would be too low for airplanes. And the number of people who go around looking at the tops of trees with helicopters is not that large. And you can tell that this sto- that notion, 2013 was before they had, before you could go into Walmart and buy a drone. Because mm-hmm. now you could go over and buy a drone, uh, you know, it maybe cost you $29.99 and you power it up and you could go up there and see if it's a wasp nest or a skeleton or what. And so- the, the, the that that premise is sort of like not so good anymore. But the idea that if you were an alien and you wanted to visit us, but you didn't want to be annoyed by those people in Roswell or 
but you know, if you weren't going to land on the White House lawn and say, take me to your leader, but you wanted to be just sort of poke around quietly without messing with our paranoia, with the U.S. Air Force, you know, with all these things that we're kind of unpleasant about, you would park yourself very quietly and just sort of pooch gently around. And that only really becomes a problem if you're small. There's a real prejudice about small. Uh, people don't believe that really small things are bad or dangerous or, or need to be respected. You know, what do you do with ants? You step on them. Uh, the uh, it even you can even see this with human beings. You know, children are less respected than adults. If you are a very petite adult, you are not as well respected as a man who is six foot six tall. It is really much easier to be tall. It's easier to be big. We have a prejudice in favor of it. So even if you were a very, very smart alien, if you were about the size of um, a squirrel, I don't know if anyone would take you seriously if you landed on the White House lawn. You know, you would, you would, you would get out there and you'd stand on the grass and say, "Take me to your leader," and and someone would, you know, pop you with a with a gun or something because it's just we don't take small things that seriously. Or say how which is worse. I don't Say know again? the term sizist, but we're totally sizist. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that we are sizist. And and it's it doesn't really, it's not that important to us because everything that's smaller than us, we've either killed or are no longer frightened of, you know, except for th- odd things like rattlesnakes or, you know, people respect well, moose, you know? Well, one thing I liked about your story is that because you're absolutely right about size, there's sizeism, there's also sexism. And I liked it that a that a woman played an important role in your story too. Yeah, it- the the uh I had been planning for I had been planning to write a novel about this. Uh, when the other thing I realized is that we're kind of what do you call it? chronologically prejudiced. There's a good term. I just made it up. <laughs> what it means is that if aliens come and visit, they're supposed to come and visit us now, or at the very latest, the 1950s, you know, so that they could be imprisoned in Roswell, you know, in a very 1950s kind of a way. There's no the climists. Yeah, it is. It is. It is not. We don't really expect that, you know, the Roman, that the uh, uh, aliens would arrive and it's the Roman emperors or, you know, something. It would annoy us if they were so inorga- unorganized to show up before there was media to film them. Uh, and we don't think about that. And I don't see any reason, you know, why this should be so. So I was it, going to combine these. A bit of that out there, though, Brenda, I wanted to say for those of us that have gone and seen the Indiana Jones movie, there is science fiction possible in the past that I think opens the door for this as well. Well, that is good. It is. Um, I haven't mm-hmm. seen the new Indiana Jones movie. Instead, I went and saw Barbie, which is very, very fun. <laughs> and I recommend it to everybody. Well, uh, there's, a, there's just a little bit of Archimedes and, you know, yet another fascinating Italian out there. Uh-huh. Not quite. Oh, oh yeah, there's 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 like there's just like sort of like lots of fun to be had that no one had had it so I felt I should go and have it. And well, uh, yeah. so so poor old Dante suddenly meets himself an alien. Great, super. And uh and someone and they, it was CJ Cherry who fished up all these a lot of these uh classical things, you know, Dio Cassius uh, reports it in a that one of the Roman generals saw a essentially a flying saucer in the air only he described it as a flying shield there's a flying shield in the air 
and the Romans saw it and somebody wrote it down and told Dio Cassius, you know, who wrote it down and then C.J. Terry read it and told it to me. So there's a lot of stuff floating around about small things, about weird things. Uh, the idea that the, uh, the uh, um, oracle of Kume is very small and lives in a jug. Fascinating. How, why would, why would that oracle do that? Uh, well, clearly, you know, all of these things tie together. And so then that I wound up and then I, I couldn't write the novel. So I began writing it and then I quit writing it in 2016 because I somehow the novel refused to, co to congeal. And I know it was 2016 because if you look at uh, your words, your, your file in Word, in Microsoft Word, it tells you the last date you opened that file. Wow. And the last date I opened this file was 2016. Very bad. <laughs> so I went and uh, so I think that it was this year in, in May that I became so guilty that I opened the file and I read it and I thought, you know, and, you know, when you let it cool long enough, it does become clear what you had done with it. And I realized I had never this had never really meant to be a novel. That's why it would refuse to go anywhere. There wasn't enough, there wasn't enough yarn. There wasn't enough fiber. There wasn't enough stuff to be a hundred thousand words. It's shorter or a whole bunch shorter. If I take out all the fun bits, you know, like we take out only the cherries and the chocolate chips and we had that instead of trying to bake a whole cake, then that would be much nicer. And you'd have many, many more cherries and chocolate chips per bite. And so I said, I wrote it short, really short. And I, it's 8,000 some words now. And, and that was easy and that was fun and it worked out great. And, uh, and then just because it was when the, um, the, uh, this was about when Clark's world was having their great travail with AI. I don't know if you remember. We do. It wasn't yeah. very long ago. No, of course, it was only in uh, it, it, either April or May or June. It was right around then. And they actually had to shut down uh, submissions for a bit because they were flooded by computer-generated crap. And just deleting it was took, took so much time that they had to just close, close up shop for a bit. <laughs> I actually had to send some sources to my husband's. My husband's uh, parents were both uh, university professors. And, like, there are sites out there by which you copy and paste and you say was this ai generated and it will tell you i am in hopes that something like that will become more common and i'm also convinced that the periodicals the magazines are saving the submitters names and sharing mm. them a little blacklist because that yeah. seems only right and proper and uh and so i submitted it to clark's world because neil is famous for returning things quickly and I uh, sent it to him, and I, I think I must have caught that moment where, having powered through 299 computer-generated uh, uh, <laughs> manuscripts, yeah. finally a real one came through. Oh, my God, so great, because the contrast must have been very nice. And yes. so, yeah, and so that was very good. And so they bought it within four days. I have never written it and oh. finished it and sent it and. Turned it around in four days. I have never done that before. That's very, very, very unusual. <laughs> well, can, can, I, can, I, can I tell you my quickest? Yes. Um, I, I'm notorious for leaving things to the last minute. Um, there was an anthology had asked me to submit a story. Mm -hmm. um, a, a, the deadline was New Year's Eve. So 
on New Year's Eve. The deadline was midnight, New Year's Eve. So mm-hmm. on New Year's Eve, I started writing my story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wrote it, um, and I finished it, and I sent it off at about nine o'clock, and then I went to a New Year party, as you do. Um, and, and I came back about four o'clock in the morning to find an acceptance in my in my inbox. Very good. That's that ties mine with the gingerbread elf that yeah. I wrote for, for the Christmas story. If you remember that one, that was yeah. like I, I remember calling you, Chaz. I think something's wrong. Somebody answered me the very next day and said we'd like to publish your story, and you said that's wrong. Are they? Is, is this crazy? But. <laughs> Well, it just must be every now and then that the stars align or something. And, you know, the I I have stories that are still, you know, they're in month seven of submission at whatever magazine it is. And, you know, the editors are, you know, lackadaisically turning over the inbox like, hey, you know, yeah. and, uh, uh, you know. I got an refusal on a query just the other day and it had only been open for a year and a half. Oh. I think mine has been gone for, I, I sent a short story to, I forget which magazine, but. Uh, I'll by a year's end, I will query them and ask them what the hell they're doing. But this, it's been all gone a long time. This is for those of you out there that are querying and worrying <laughs> and being anxious about getting things answers quickly or slowly. I want you to take these words of trust in as being there's literally no way to tell. Please be open minded and friendly about it. Why? Well, because I actually got one of those really short ones too. Um, it was um, Ian Waits. Uh, the magazine he's editing right now, and I can't remember the name of it because I just got back Parsec. from Parsec Magazine, and um, and I sent him the I sent him a story, and he bought it, and when we had did some back and forth, he says, "Are you sure? You know, you sure you want to sell it to us? Because it was it was because they're they were um um what's the word? They're not a a big name. They were just a, they're a, a smaller new um, magazine that's actually pretty good." Um, and I said, well, yeah, I sent it to you. And, and he said, okay, well then I'm going to buy it. So I, I had one of those too. Um, oh. it's the, the Bayesian analysis of wishes and it's in, um, uh, Parsec magazine, Parsec, Ma- Parsec magazine number two. And I recommend you try out Parsec magazine because it's got a lot of really good writers in it. I have a subscription and, um, they've got some really good stories in there and mine. So. <laughs> I think that's another thing for people to think about. It used to be that we would pick up the paper magazines with all the short stories in it. But now I want to encourage listeners to go out there and say you may have to subscribe online to the magazines to get the great short stories that are being written. I mean, I follow David Gerald and he's constantly tossing out short stories now and again. Brenda, you are. So what are your guys' favorites each to read? We have Clark's World. We have Parsec. Any other good ones you're reading right now? I like scary snippets. I don't know scary snippets. <laughs> you know, I have a diff- different idea about this. All of these e-magazines, what we should be doing is we should be taking them over to the our local public library and asking them to subscribe. Oh. They could add them to their periodicals collection, and then you, with your library card, could go over to the portal and read. Uh, what was the what was the one that you, you parsec for instance? Parsec, yes. I should say that Clark's World it runs on the model that it's free, so all you have to do is go to clarksworld.com or .org ah. which, and just click on it, and you can read everything that's there. They make their actual money from anthologies and things like that. So, huh? 
so this would not be suitable for the model of getting your library to subscribe. Mm. But yeah. since so many short public short fiction now is running in e-publication because of the great cost of paper and mail, it would not be a bad idea to get your public library in there and buy a few of these. This would not only mean that you know you could uh, read it through their portal, but everyone in your county could read it through their portal. And it's not even like it's uh, unfair or unwise use of the county's money because you yourself are paying for this by paying your tax dollar to your polity. So I think that would be a very reasonable. We should think about this. Yeah. And like it. Well, both I'm a big supporter of libraries generally and in particular, and it can't hurt to say, you know, hey, all of these smaller anthologies, there's a lot of themed anthologies out there too. I mm -hmm. find them through mm -hmm. Duotrope and other places. And if you mm -hmm. say, I want to read scary Valentine's Day stories or scary other, there are, there's Googling that you can do, but there's also anthologies that are wrapped around almost any topic that you could imagine. <laughs> mm -hmm. And some that, frankly, I had never realized anyone would imagine, but they went and they did it. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I have a short story in alternate Beatles and not one, but two people, uh, uh, Michael Fantrella and Randy Dawn, co-edited this because they both turned over to Ian Randallstruck and said, somebody should do a fantasy novel, a fantasy anthology about the Beatles, alternate Beatles. And when he, he got two suggestions for this, you know, one in each mm. year of the same week or whatever it was, he said, you two are going to collaborate and do it because clearly the force is with you or ah. whatever it is that one says. So how did it turn out? Well, it's well, Brenda, out. obviously Brenda was in it. Oh yeah, I, I you know I, I the the uh, uh, I only remember this because someone asked me about it just just recently, but um, uh, Mike kept on nagging me. He said, "I need a story from you." You know, you said you would do a story, and I said, "Well, you've already done. I'm sure somebody has already done the idea of John Lennon not being murdered. You know, and mm -hmm. near in Central Park in whenever whatever year that was." And he said, "Yeah, I got three of them like that," and I said, "Do you have a short story?" about George Harrison saving the world with tantric sex. And he said, I don't. And I said, <laughs> I will do this for you. And it'll be, you know, kind of R to X rated, but you know, maybe you could live with that. And and yes, indeed, we did it and that was fine. And- uh, What's the name most of that story, of, Brenda? Excuse me, say again? What is the name of that story? Oh, it's called My Sweet Lord of Light, because the other thing that yeah. happened was George Harrison couldn't, had not, of course, read any Roger Zelazny, but he had had sex with a girl who had worked on Star Trek and she had read it. Ah. And, so, and so that all worked out perfectly fine. And and uh, 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 I don't really know exactly how Roger Zelazny's work got into that, but there you are. Well, the six degrees of Rogers Lasny are, are well established. So I'm sure that's, yes, I'm sure that's a, a known universe thing. So okay. tell me that, I mean, you said something briefly and I wanted to pounce upon it, but you were mid stride. So let me back up just a little bit. We have described in great detail of how you know sometimes when you've written a short story and somebody says to you, this is a world building. This is so big. This is longer. This is a novel. How did you decide that Dante was a short story, that, that Cleo's scroll was a short story, not a full novel? Well, the real way to tell is that you can write it 
And you, if you couldn't write the novel, but you can write the short story, well, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Uh, but professionally speaking, I'm not, I don't know if everybody writes this way, but the way I write is I accumulate lots of stuff about it and it, I pile it all up on the, you know, metaphorically on the floor. And there's all this, these little odd ends of string and yarn and stuff. And it's all sitting there and it gets bigger and bigger. And then after a while, I find some knitting needles and I grab an end and I cast on. And if there's enough to knit the whole garment, then that's great. And it's a novel. And if there isn't, sometimes it can work up to be something shorter. And sometimes it's just the pieces are too short or they're too depressing. And I can't finish the object. It's an unfinished object, as knitters say. So it should, sometimes it, it works out. Sometimes it doesn't. But that, that's essentially how you know if it does work out. It should be pointed out at this point that Brenda is also a fabric artiste. Um, yeah, I'm a yeah, I knit a lot. I paint. I do lots of irritating things like that. But uh, at least people can read books. You know that you don't. I don't. I don't have to find you and force a sweater upon you. <laughs> yeah, not in California. Please no. No, it's really too warm here today. Yes. You also, it, you prolific thing. You have a novel that came out this year, "A Door in His Head." Yes, I did. I uh, what uh, and this is going to get convoluted again. What I did was I wrote eleven novels uh, about Miss Marion Halcombe, and all of these were Victorian thrillers set in the eighteen seventies, eighteen eighties, some things like that, and everything. There was pirates, bigamy, people shooting guns, alligators needing to be slain with revolvers. Uh, there was uh, uh, there were I crammed in everything, and I wrote them very, very, very fast. Eleven of them, one right after the other, and, and then it was like. It say again. I said, and they're huge fun. I mean, I, oh. I got to copy edit them, and I, it was just a blast from start to finish. I could hear it in the other room. Uh, what I did then, though, was I sort of had like I do this sometimes. I had indigestion. I couldn't do Victorian anymore. It was like, oh, you know, I've I've eaten too many of those uh, chocolate marshmallows, and I just can't do this anymore. So I wanted to write something different, but I had. Very foolishly, in the last book, I had said something. The the uh, hero had had a prophecy. Uh, uh, his 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 tame uh, temple had given him a prophecy, and the question was, "How long am I going to live?" And they said, "Oh, you're going to die when you're seventy two, and that's a good long way away when you're only twenty two years old." So he's let's say, "Well, great, I have fifty years to play with. Let's go wild." And so they go off and they do their thing. But I'm the uh, but one of his friends could do arithmetic and he said well if you're going to die when you're 72 that'll be 1941 that is a long time away and then me the author said 1941 this is set in southeast asia i should say at 1941 a lot of bad things happened yeah. in southeast asia in 1941 and i am the girl who could write about them and so i said i could write a world war ii novel and it would be about you know it would be it, we, we'd have to fast forward 77 you know 52 years or whatever it is uh and uh we could do all of this fun stuff and i wouldn't have to be victorian instead i could fast forward to where they could fly in airplanes and you know listen to rock and roll music wouldn't that be great and uh so because i needed a this break i went and i be, be, began to write a door in his head and it is set in it begins in I think in 1949 or 1948, it begins in 1948, uh, right after World War II, because I 
didn't really want to write a World War II novel, actually, because it's actually fairly hard to write about Southeast Asia and World War II. There's not a lot of material in this country about that. In America, if you read about World War II, there's stacks and stacks of memoirs about people who fought in, you know, Guadalcanal and they, in Japan and about Pearl Harbor. But there's not a lot of stuff about Malaysia and Singapore because a lot of Americans were not involved with that. And so, oh, I made my life easier by skipping all that stuff. <laughs> yeah. You could just have written British again. Because we were well, very... I, I could have, but I... There was a number of I, I, you. You could read a door in his head. It's it's gonna it's gonna be up on Bookview Cafe. It would be easy, but it would be it is the sort of thing that is fairly. It was easier in many ways to have him leave Asia and go to San Francisco. In fact, in fact, he yeah. his uncle has a house in Sausalito, and so it was a lot. I, I it, to get it. it I want. Um, I was cheating by picking things that was easier for me to write about. I can drive to Sausalito. I was pretty sure I couldn't drive to an imaginary country in the South China Sea. I think you could, if anyone. <laughs> I could, but I don't want to do it. You know, I'm, it was the uh, this was during virus, and it's that I was in the mode where I'm going to write this, but I'm not. I'm going to make it as easy on myself as possible because otherwise it'll just be too hard. Yeah. And and uh, uh, so this was a. And it was a, actually a very fun book to write. And I wrote, and my hero had the most appalling adventures and bad things happened to him. And it, because he is of Asian extraction and a chunk of the action is, after all, set in Southeast Asia, it's uh, a, a university in Iowa started a prize. And it was going to be the Diverse Voices Prize. And they were going to, they were looking for books that were about, uh, Asian Amer about Asian Americans set in Asia or written by uh, an Asian uh, uh, author of Asian extraction. And at that moment, you can look at me and say, wait a minute, I have the whole thing right here. So I sent them the manuscript, not expecting anything to happen in particular about this. And I was astounded when I actually won. I have never actually won an award of this type before. So they published this thing. It's out in trade paper and, and it's uh in uh, Amazon and Ingram and everything. What's uh, it called again? What's the title is, again? It is titled A uh, Door in His Head. And I've got the link. I'll put it out. Yeah. I Me, of course. And it is, uh, and it's up everywhere in Ingram and everything like that. And it's, uh, 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 I don't really know, you know, uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a good book of its type, but it's sort of like not one that I've written before. And because it was not like one that I had written before, I immediately wrote a sequel for it. And then, uh, um, and then because that's sort of how we roll. And now I'm contemplating writing a sequel, uh, you know, sort of grinding forward to, in time. I wanted to ask about this because I saw on one of the sites that talked about it as it being the first book in the cockeyed optimist series. So <laughs> I presume. Yeah. Well, you know, South Pacific. Yeah, and, it is. It is sort of South Pacific. And one of the things it's, it's about, it's about what it really is about. It's about recovering from the major trauma of being in world war two, unfun, very unfun to be invaded by the Japanese. And it was, uh, uh, the hero has grave difficulties getting better from this, but it's through the course of the book, he gets a grip on it and he gets better. And the sequel about his sister is in a sense about her getting better from it as well. And then 
I'm not sure exactly what's going to happen to this third hypothetical third volume, which uh, uh, Jay O'Connell already did the cover for. So I probably have to write it. Yes, you do. It's so annoying. <laughs> and it's, uh, uh, I'm going to, but if I, he went and he did this. And so now I feel obliged to write it, but it's going to be possibly very different from the other two. And it might very well be about, uh, it might well very well be about sharks and talking to sharks and about rock and roll music. And I think that would be very good. That'd be yeah. There are not enough novels about sharks. I want and to get on record as supporting all shark literature. Well, this one would be because there's a there's a long on running thing in these books about the sharks because uh, it's not entirely clear that the uh, culture has been wor worshiping this sh sacred shark for a period of time and there's been a lot of ups and downs with this and being invaded by the Japanese did not help but it's actually probably going to be you know kind of important. And one of the things I guess the book is going to be about is if someone just appears in the world, you know, somebody appears in the world and says, call me Dr. Doolittle, I can talk to the animals. Well, then what? Is this really going to fly? You know, the number of people who will say, you're Aquaman, aren't you? You're talking to sharks, you're Aquaman. Uh, and, you know, well, let's, uh, I want to be yeah. fair here for a second. Maui was technically the shark god. And yes. I'm pretty sure that the Australian Aboriginals had a, you know, that they worshipped a giant tiger shark. And I'm going to mangle this. I'm sorry. I'll put it right in the long, but like Bangudia. And I know because I run the tiger sharks regularly around. So sharks do get some glory here and there. Well, actually, there's an entire, there's some, there's some uh, islanders somewhere near Tahiti who have a, the duty of singing to the sharks. And you sing to the sharks, it, uh, it allegedly reconciles them to being killed and eaten. But it's a thing that everybody does. And I was reading an article about it. I've saved the URL somewhere about how the, uh, the people who are doing this are very worried because the kids are not learning how to sing the shark <laughs> songs. And who's going to sing mm. to the shark? Mm. Uh, so I, I so, thought there was something out of Seattle when I lived up there, too. Are you thinking of the dogfish woman? No, this is in the South Pacific, somewhere okay. near Tahiti. And they're, they, they've been traditionally hunting sharks for, you know, yippity yip, centuries. And they always sing to the shark and they're very worried about how it's not working out now. Between, uh, you know, uh, habitat loss and people not singing to the sharks, the, the hunting is not so good. And so my hero is going to be able to sing to the sharks. And I have to think of some way to make this where he's not forced to become Aquaman. Or, or Namor, <laughs> Prince of Atlantis. I don't want him to be Namor, Prince of Atlantis. I want him to try to wrestle with this in a real way. And I have to give, give some thought process to this because... Um, um, if it's... you're sticking with history, Pliny, and I don't remember if it's the elder, but one of the Plinies also talked about sharks and trying to make them happy and feed them to keep them away from pearl divers. So there is a whole thing about, you know, having your relationship with the sea creatures and usually it's dolphins, but whales and, uh, and to a lesser extent, sharks, this does happen. Uh, there, you, there's a large record of people being, you know, you are nice to yeah. dolphins. Dolphins are nice to you. Yeah, that's just it. If you're nice to sharks, there's no guarantee the sharks <laughs> will be nice to you. <laughs> well, this is going to work out. Okay. But it is, uh, uh, 
we're going to have to work on. And there's a, a whole bunch of stuff that was done just around that period about talking to the guy who recorded whale songs. Do you remember that? And oh, yeah. decided that I, he, I, I have the URL somewhere. All of this stuff is pasted in files so I can look at it later. But he's very famous for recording the songs and, and realizing that they were just not random vocalizations like the squeak of doors, but they were actually a communication between various whales and they, you know, there's stuff going on here. So this is going to be sort of part of that. And uh, of course it will wander off. And, and I, well, my problem is having this premise. I haven't thought about what else the book is going to be about. You know, surely there need to be major hijinks, uh, 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 <laughs> Brenda, the one the one sure thing I know about the way you work is that you will insert hijinks. Yes, stuff is going to happen. Uh, I was very pleased, uh, whipping around back to Dante, I was very pleased to get so much stuff into that, uh, uh, that 8,000 words. People burned at the stake, you know, people forced into nunneries. It's great. Yeah, it was. It was very interesting. And uh, the other fun, oh, and the other thing that really helped me to write this was last year we did go to Italy and we were able to actually drive down these roads and live in these towns. And I have actually taken a bath in the in the uh, hot pools at San Casciano del Bagni because um, it is a real site. And only this year they found a whole bunch of Etruscan statues there. They were still digging on them when I went by, but the apparently people have been sacrificing to the gods at the, in those warm springs for a long, long time. So it's wow. very cool. It is. And what are you working on now? Can you? Is it just the latest in the cockeyed optimist, or do you have another Marion Holcomb? What's What's on Brenda's ever? Well, I'm going to write a, a, a number twelve for Marion Halcombe because I so someone that actually it was Jennifer Jen Stevens mm-hmm. Stevenson over in Bookview Cafe. She said eleven is not a good number. Twelve <laughs> is a better number. It divides more nicely into trilogies. You know, eleven is a, is isn't it a prime number? Anyway, it doesn't divide nicely. Mm-hmm. So she said you got to do a twelfth one. And so I said, well, I guess I could sort of. There's a gap in the, uh, there's a nice timeline for Marion, but there's a nice little gap, exactly 30 days. And I could seam in an entire novel into this one 30 day gap, making it all hook up left, right, up, down. So it's all seamless and very, very nice. And I even was able to contrive a reason why this 12th novel did not roll out with the previous 11 in its chronological order. <laughs> it, it turned out that George V, King of England, did not want it to be published. And he said, I'll give you a title if you don't do it. And, you know, the editor said, oh, oh okay, sure. I don't mind, you know, ha- having a, a knighthood or whatever it is. And uh, and uh, and so uh, they, there was a, a long delay. But then after then when once World War Two kicked up, they realized, you know, he's they have more things to deal with at that point. Now, Mr. Hitler is diverting everybody's attention. So now they can push it out. They did. Oh, I don't know. I was hoping for a science fiction crossover that somehow Marion and Sarah Tolerance touched through a mirror and then came through and you know it's the fan thing. <laughs> yes. Well yeah and you know the 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 thing is that I think Mad is still working very hard on Sarah Tolerance and uh I don't want to disturb her 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 <laughs> gestation process because it's it's a little more delicate. We are uh, yes. than mine. I, I want her to leave her quietly to gestate. 
Although I wanted, I wanted in your book that you were just talking about, um, the person who needed a title to have someone come up and say, um, mathematics 101. <laughs> I know, I know. Okay. There. Sorry. As a final question, then, you talked a lot about collecting bits and bobs and how you make stories and do research, etc. Are you a notebook user? Are you a computer file user? Tell us how you organize and gather it all together to pour it into creativity. Well, what I have taken to doing is to putting things into Word files and then squirreling them on, um, whatchamacallit, uh, um, it's not DoorDash. What is this thing? Dropbox. Dropbox. I've been putting. I put them up in files on Dropbox, and uh, and the, they and the Word file, of course, has the date on it, so it shows, shows you when I've been terribly, terribly lazy and have not looked at things for years. But it is. Uh, 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 then they sort of stay safe and they follow me around from computer to computer and country to country. I don't have to worry about it too much. You're the first uh, thing that's mentioned Dropbox as opposed to now we, we're all wondering, I think, if all of those Google documents we've been safe have been quietly harvested by Bard all this time. But I don't you know, I'm wondering, you know, that you always wonder whether these things in the cloud, how safe they are. And yeah, it is a little worried that they'll be scraped for AI. But uh, at this moment, I'm uh, I, I, you know, I've done the bit where you print them all out and then you have these sheaves and sheaves of paper. And then I either lose the paper or they get wet or I put them into a box and then I move it and I never find them again. And so in a, they're more findable uh, uh, up in the cloud. And I have to think about whether there's some other way to, to, to do this. But I think we're all, we all have the same problem that we need a secure uh, place to squirrel stuff. We do. And <laughs> I have to say, I think there's so many people that would done day live and say, make sure you on your dying bed, give somebody the password so future people can dive through your brain as it is preserved. Yes. I really worry about the people who are because we are just on that generation where it shifted over from paper to word processor. Yes. You know, I typed the, the first ma the manuscript of my novel, first novel by hand on a typewriter. And. <laughs> That means that there was a manuscript to hand over to, you know, some university or another. Or I think I donated all of mine to the University of Ohio. But it is, they, the paper exists and then people can look at it. But can they look at, they can't look at the word file because when I update it, I hit save. The previous version's gone forever, forever. Yeah. Yeah. And they'll never, there's no way they can look at previous versions the way you can look at the previous versions of David Copperfield and say, well, you see what, you know, Dickens did here with the character. You know, he made it him ever so much more sensible by doing X, Y, and Z. But you can't do that now because I hit save and the yeah, old I document. Know. I can in Google because I had to show my boss that he did not need to archive old versions. We simply could look at old versions if you really cared that much. So... There are some mechanisms out there. There are, but I don't know if you can do that just saving them in Microsoft Word. And what it is, is unless there's some way to get those computer files, and if you know those PhD candidates in the far future are able to get into these files, which I cannot imagine how they will do, it's going to be really hard. So I have, you know, the, the paper manuscripts are not there. I don't know how people will find them. And I'm wondering if I should just print out the manuscript somewhere and hand them all to the University of 
wherever it was, so that they'll have them, except they would take a lot of toner. It'd be very annoying. They would. But no, that's a very good point, though. That's a very good point, because I have lost so many stories that were in the format that I was sure would stick, you know, stick around. Yeah, for yeah. it was on a, it was on a nice floppy disk. And now you can't get, get that floppy disk to play for love, no money. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so so then but then printing it out, you know, that just fills you your life with paper, cases and cases of paper. I'm my, wondering. Life is, my life is filled with paper. I have books everywhere. I have a giant I have a giant clubhouse out back which is wall to wall to wall to wall books. I have so much paper that having having the few printouts of my stories would have been so nice to have done. But did I do it? No, because I was crazy. Well, she also has a husband. Okay, yeah. You probably I print out everything because I still edit on paper. I am I am you know, I'm old. Um my first three novels, Brenda, were written on typewriters. Mm-hmm. Um, with carbon paper and everything. Um, and you're that old. I'm that old, honey. Um, well, so if you've printed them out, maybe what I should do is when I come over, I should take away from you all twelve sets of the Marion novels printed out and scribbled over by you, and send them to the University of Ohio. Oh, that would be a good thing. Totally I wish I wish I'd thought of that. Oh, you've already pulped them, dear, dear. All right. Uh, yeah, 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 I put them in the recycling if they're not okay. more. Okay. Mine just stack up. Yeah. Because um, I've never found a university that wants me. So I well, should just go mine away too. But Do you want to, you know, all right, you email me and I'll send you the email of this guy because they're, yeah. they're collecting stuff. And yeah. so if you want to, oh. you can send them in. And the great charm of it is they, if they decide to collect your, all your stuff, they will pay for the shipping of it to them in Ohio or wherever it is. Okay. Okay, that's a good idea. If you don't mind to send me the link to where somebody might go and look up other versions, if there's somebody collecting it versions and iterations, so they can see the process firsthand. I think uh, our listeners might be interested in looking up that sort of thing. I don't know because it's the kind of thing that really, like PhD theses, are written by this. But I personally would not object to having PhD theses written about me, and so. I, I'm trying to encourage uh, what I'm what I'm thinking about is all those these books that only exist in e format. There is I'm not certain there's any way for them to get into the archives of wherever it is. So I could go through and just walk the files down to the uh, uh, print shop and print them and then mail them all to to whatever they are. Uh, or oh, even cheaper and more pleasant thought, I could contact them. And email them the files, and they could print it out. And then that I wouldn't even have to ship dead tree. That would be very nice. Well, I, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry to throw a wrench into this, but when I actually called that number about my mom because she has all that research about Mary oh, right. Hamlet and and um, who deserves a Pulitzer Prize instead of what's his fuck? Excuse me, Wallace Stegner. It's Wallace Stegner. And the first question was, how many pages? Yeah. Okay. Oh. Yeah. So have that answer. How many pages um, before you you do that? Well, we'll work I on this. Yeah, yeah, because I have to I have to think about it. But what I worry about is you know that ebooks exist, but how long will they exist? You know, if there's you know yeah you know if Amazon melts down, for instance, could be very difficult. You know, yes. if, if AI runs around and scrapes them all, I don't know. You know. Yeah, well, be comforted. I think OpenAI is having financial problems because people are discovering just how computationally expensive 
it is to store large language models. But we will put links to all the fascinating things we've been discussing during this episode on our website, which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com. Brenda, thank you so much for coming with us today, and congratulations. Thank you so very much. It's always a pleasure to come and do things with you guys. Well, we love talking to you, and I now have to go read A Door in His Head as well as Cleo's Scroll. So thanks for giving me something to read over the weekend here. Super. You've been listening to Riders Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web magic is cast by Deirdre Schween, and our sound engineer and backup web spiders are David Welsh and John Schmidt. Our intro and exit music is by Michael Engberg. You can hear more from him on manyhatsmusic.com. Our podcast sponsors are Jackal's Designs, The Bean Seed, Arm Street, and homage to whatever your favorite coffee shop happens to be, even if it's in Italy. And hey, mm-hmm. thanks for listening.